Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, an update on the Ukraine. We speak with Alfred Zayas, law professor at the Geneva School of Diplomacy, who served as a UN independent expert on international order from 2012 to 2018. Also, um, well, yet another example of lack of accountability in the police killing of another black man. We speak with uh, D.A. Bullock about prosecutors' refusal to charge the police officers who killed Amir Locke in a no-knock warrant. Also, our weekly Earth Minute, and for our weekly Earth Watch, we speak with Dana Smith, Executive Director of the Dogwood Alliance. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated, so on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. I'm Max Pringle with these headlines. NATO ministers are meeting in Brussels today to coordinate their response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kaleba has been pleading his country's case for more military assistance and harder sanctions on Russia. Feature Story News' Rosie Burchard reports from Brussels. On his way into the talks where I am here at NATO headquarters, Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba said he had three items on his agenda, weapons, weapons and weapons. The talks among NATO allies come as the alliance chief Jens Stoltenberg warns that Russian troops may be regrouping, resupplying and readying for a major push in eastern and southern Ukraine. NATO allies are expected to continue supplying Kiev with weapons, but Ukraine is also calling for even tighter sanctions on Moscow and says existing proposals do not go far enough. Rosie Burchard, Brussels. Ukraine is telling residents of the eastern part of the country to flee while they still can as Russian forces withdrawing from the outskirts of Kiev look poised to launch an assault in the east. Ukrainian officials fear a repeat of the kind of atrocities apparently carried out by Russian forces in the city of Bucha. Ukrainian authorities are gathering evidence of alleged Russian atrocities amid signs Moscow's troops killed people indiscriminately before retreating from areas north of Kiev. Meanwhile, the mayor of the southern port city of Mariupol said more than 5,000 civilians have been killed during a Russian assault there. South Korea has been in talks with Washington about increasing the number of U.S. forces on the Korean peninsula to shore up regional security following a spate of North Korean missile tests. Nora Wynak reports from Tokyo. The discussion between the White House and the delegation sent by President-elect Yoon Suk-yeol included talk of South Korea hosting U.S. nuclear bombers. Speaking to reporters after the meeting in Washington, lawmaker Pak Jin said that it was an important part of strengthening extended deterrence. The development signals a departure from current President Moon Jae-in's diplomatic policy. But experts expect Yoon Suk-yeol to harden Seoul's stance on Pyongyang. Nora Weinig, Tokyo. The Senate is expected to confirm President Biden's Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson today. She's poised to become the first black woman on the high court. Three Republican senators have said they will support Jackson. They are Maine's Susan Collins, Alaska's Lisa Murkowski, and Mitt Romney of Utah. 
Brown would replace Justice Stephen Breyer when he retires this summer. No other Republican is expected to confirm her nomination, seeking to portray her in hours of Judicial Committee hearing testimony last month as too liberal. President Biden has signed into law plans for a sweeping overhaul of the U.S. Postal Service. The measure is meant to shore up the agency's financial future and cement six days a week mail delivery. Biden said at a White House signing ceremony that the bill ensures quality mail service. We're guaranteeing that the mail will continue to be delivered six days a week. And the bill increases transparency by requiring the Postal Service to develop an online public dashboard updated weekly with local and national service performance data. The legislation cleared Congress last month after years of discussion and comes amid widespread complaints about mail service slowdowns. Officials had repeatedly warned that without congressional action, the Postal Service would run out of cash by 2024. The final bill achieved rare bipartisan support by scrapping some of the more controversial proposals to settle on core ways to save the service. A deal on a COVID-19 package has stalled in the U.S. Senate. The compromise $10 billion measure would shore up the government's COVID-19 defenses. It seems all but certainly sidetracked in that chamber for weeks. The sticking point was over Title 42, a Trump-era provision to expel migrants at the border, citing COVID concerns. President Biden and top Democrats wanted Congress to approve the measure this week. And with Senate Democrats' top goal this week being the confirmation of Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson, the COVID-19 bill seemed sure to slip at least until Congress returns after a two-week recess. I'm Max Pringle. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Russian troops have been withdrawing from Kiev in Ukraine's capital city, they say as a goodwill gesture to move a negotiated end to the war. However, the U.S. and Western allies are saying the withdrawal represents a defeat by Russian troops to take Kiev. The Russian military strategy was un unclear if indeed the intention was to take Kiev or to make a show of force as it pressed its case for independence of the Donbass region in the east. Meanwhile, Russia has been accused of war crimes for what are described as a massacre in the Bucha region. But Russia denied the killings and accused the Ukraine of staging them. Meanwhile, the U.S. and Europe are slapping new sanctions on Russia. The EU is banning Russian coal, and the U.S. is slapping sanctions on Putin's children. President Zelensky of Ukraine is asking for more military equipment and assistance from the U.S. and the West as the war just drags on. Some humanitarian convoys have gotten out of uh, Maripol, the city, where the situation continues to be dire following Russian bombardment. Also, some reports are emerging, at least one verified by the New York Times, that shows Ukrainian military forces killing and torturing captured Russian soldiers. This underscores a claim that Russia has consistently made of abuse by Ukrainian military forces in the Donbass region. 
On Tuesday, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg warned that the war in Ukraine is entering a new phase. The Secretary General said, quote, in the coming weeks, we expect a further Russian push in the eastern and southern Ukraine to try to take the entire Donbass and to create a land bridge to occupied Crimea. So this is a crucial phase of the war. The government of the Ukraine, meanwhile, has warned civilians in the eastern Ukraine to leave the region. Russia said that it would end its military occupation or operation only if Zelensky agrees on two conditions, legal guarantees that Ukraine will never be allowed to join NATO, a Western military alliance, and Russia wants Ukraine to change its constitution to cement this, and also that Ukraine recognize the independence of two pro-Russia regions in the east, uh, Donetsk and Lukansk. Russia also wants Ukraine to recognize Crimea, which was annexed in 2014 as Russian territory. Let us go now to a clip from Al Jazeera. Negotiators from Russia and Ukraine have held face-to-face talks in Turkey to try and end five weeks of war. Turkey's president says now's the time for concrete results and a ceasefire. The Ukrainian delegation wants to see peace nationwide before any final agreement can be considered. Ukraine's also offering to declare its neutrality in return for security guarantees and to discuss the status of the annexed region of Crimea over the next 15 years. But Ukraine's leadership insists territorial integrity and sovereignty are not up for discussion. Uh, the Russian Federation has been less than, uh, you know, uh, trustworthy on these issues, even before the invasions. If you remember, a few days prior to uh, February 24th, the Russian side said it was pulling uh, uh, its troops away from the border. Then it turned around, regrouped and hit Ukraine in all its parts with a massive kind of shock and awe campaign of bombing, which never really relented during this whole time. Uh, I think the situation on the ground is dictating that Vladimir Putin somehow uh, you know, reset his strategy simply because the Russian troops are stretched too thin, the logistics are poor, uh, they have suffered massive casualties, 15,000, 16,000 and counting, and 50,000 disabled, uh, you know, uh, soldiers, etc. Uh, but once again, uh, what, what, what I'm concerned about, despite these positive signals that we're hearing, is that this is yet another ploy by Vladimir Putin to try to win time, uh, to regroup, and to try uh, uh, to hit uh, Kiev, storm Kiev, try to invade it a second time. Uh, till uh, uh, the Ukrainian armed forces are ready to surrender. Apparently, uh, this position has uh, shifted. I think uh, that uh, uh, there are still some military objectives uh, that uh, the Russian leadership would like uh, to achieve. At least uh, they would like uh, to get uh, to the administrative borders of the uh, uh, Lugansk and uh, Donetsk oblasts, so they could control all the territories of these regions, of course, together with the military formations of the two self-proclaimed republics. All righty. And uh, there you go, a clip from Al Jazeera. I'd now like to welcome our guest, Alfred de Zayas, law professor <clears throat> at the Geneva School of Dem- Diplomacy and served as a UN independent expert on international order 2012 to 18. 
He is the author of 10 books, including Building a Just World Order 2021. Alfred, welcome. Thank you very much, Margaret, and good morning to you and to your listeners. All righty. So, Alfred, just to uh, put this discussion in some context, a couple, a couple of things to identify for our listeners. Um, tell us about, because this is part of the context of this war, what was the war's pact and why was it dismantled? Well, I don't consider that the war started on the 24th of February 2022. The war actually started on the 22nd of February 2014 when the West uh, supported an unconstitutional coup d'etat against the democratically elected president of Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych. And over the last eight years, uh, you have the uh, two Minsk agreements which provided for uh, negotiations on the status of uh, Lugansk and uh, Donetsk. And uh, unfortunately, neither President Petroshenko nor President uh, Shalinsky uh, paid any attention to that um, uh, agreement at Minsk. So we have here a uh, problem of Russia having concerns about its security, bearing in mind that uh, James Baker and Helmut Kohl and Hans-Dietrich Genscher back in 1989, 90, and 91 had given assurances that the United, I mean, that NATO would not be expanding eastwards. Now, of course, that was violated since uh, 1997 in uh, Seriatim uh, fashion. So that being the case, you have to understand it also from the perspective of the Russians. The Russians want a security architecture for Europe and for the world, and unfortunately, nobody is listening. George Kennan, our greatest uh, diplomat of the 20th century, warned uh, urgently against the expansion of uh, NATO eastwards, and that is what has destabilized uh, the area. I consider, of course, uh, Putin's actions to be a grave violation of Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the UN Charter. It is an illegal war, but you have to put it into context because there are precedents of permissibility. When George W. Bush and his coalition of the willing assaulted Iraq in 2003, that actually constituted a revolt against international law, the greatest violation of the Nuremberg Principles since the Nuremberg Trials, the greatest violation of the United Nations Charter since the Nuremberg Trials, and NATO has been engaged in aggressive uh, uh, military activities in Yugoslavia, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Syria, in Libya, etc., and all of those with total impunity. The problem is the information war. I mean, we are uh, being, shall we say, fed uh, false uh, information. We're being disinformed. And there is a one-size-fit-all narrative that you read in the New York Times, in the Washington Post, and you hear it in CNN and in Fox, etc., etc. Since I live in Switzerland, although I'm an American citizen, but I worked 
40 years with the United Nations. I was a senior lawyer with the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, and it was the chief of petitions. That is, I was the registrar for all petitions. I, um, I have a different perspective. I know a tremendous number of uh, 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 diplomats from Brussels, diplomats from Germany, diplomats uh, from Italy, diplomats from Russia, diplomats from Belarus, diplomats from Ukraine, and I was the UN uh, representative, rather the representative of the Secretary General for the elections in the Ukraine back in 1994. I mean, I was there in March uh, 94 for the parliamentary elections. I was there again uh, in June 94 for the presidential elections. I was uh, in uh, Crimea. I crisscrossed the country. Without a doubt, uh, Crimea is Russian. And without a doubt, uh, Crimea belongs to Russia. It was just an administrative decision by Khrushchev in the 1950s simply to take it away from the Russian Republic and to add it to Ukraine. As you know, that Khrushchev was himself a Ukrainian. But in any event, that was done without consultation of the population. And it is ridiculous to claim that Russia annexed uh, Crimea. I mean, the Crimean people held a referendum. There was a declaration of uh, independence by the parliament, by the legitimate Crimean parliament. It was then, uh, by request of the parliament, submitted to the Duma in uh, Moscow, which had to look at the issue of uh, can uh, Crimea or should Crimea be incorporated into Russia. That was decided favorably. Then it went to the uh, Supreme Constitutional Court of Russia, and only then was it reincorporated uh, into Russia. I mean, it is part of the information war when you read again and again that Crimea was uh, annexed. That is incorrect in international law. Annexation means that you come with uh, your tanks and your airplanes, you occupy a territory against the will of the population, and then you annex it. But this is an expression of self-determination, the same as the situation in Lugansk and in Donetsk. These people have a right to self-determination, and already the international Court of Justice, in its advisory opinion of the year 2010, on the case of Kosovo, gave precedence of the right of self-determination over the principle of territorial integrity. That is uh, in paragraph 80 uh, of the advisory opinion. So you have the Kosovo precedent, which applies very clearly to Crimea and applies very clearly to Lugansk and to Donetsk. But that, because of the information war we are enduring in the West, you don't read that in the New York Times and you don't read it in uh, the Washington Post either. Yeah, you also make the the case that, um, you know, if uh, um, the the Ukraine had met what Russia was asking for in the first place in in 2021, the two proposals put forward by Russia in 2021, this war could have been avoided. Tell us what those two proposals are and why do you think they were rejected? 
because the United States and NATO wanted them rejected. The United States doesn't want to have any accommodation of Russia. I mean, the United States is profiting from the chaos, as it always does. The military-industrial complex is laughing all the way to the bank. And the United States and NATO are determined to fight Russia till the last Ukrainian. And the awful thing is that Shelinsky allows himself to be used as a pawn. And as for that, he gets showered with all sorts of honors and awards and all sorts of things. I think that Shelinsky uh, has served his people very badly because this whole thing could have been avoided. One word would have done the trick if Shalinsky in December, in January, in February, had said, look, we understand. We declare ourselves neutral, and we want to have best relations with the West and with the East. We don't want any trouble, so henceforth we are a neutral country. That is what he should have done, and that's what he didn't do, and what he's not doing now. Matter of fact, he is backpedaling on what already was achieved at the negotiations hosted by Turkey. He's backpedaling on it. So uh, evidently, NATO wants the war to continue, and NATO is flooding Ukraine with weapons. So basically, the Ukrainians are the cannon fodder. Uh, of the United States uh, geopolitical agenda. Yeah, and, and the other thing, too, I, I wanted to ask you, I mean, I'm, I'm really glad that you underscored uh, this whole issue of, you know, what the United States and, and other uh, Western countries have done when it, it comes to Iraq also and, and many other places, and also the regime attempts uh, by the United States, of which there are many, Haiti and Honduras, um, Venezuela, Every other one. I mean, we toppled right. Grenada, we toppled Haiti, we toppled sure. the Dominican let, let, Republic. We, let uh, me ask you we, this now, because... We uh, had a coup organized by us uh, in uh, Honduras uh, when Celaya was kicked out. And uh, we try to do the same with Cuba, try to do the same in Nicaragua, try to do the same in Venezuela. It is imperial arrogance on the part of the United States. We all want peace, but we also want peace with justice. And it cannot be that the hegemon tells... Alfred, I need to ask you, we're running out of time, so I need... I need to ask you a few questions, a few more questions, Alfred, if you don't mind. I'm not quite sure you're, you're hearing me. Sorry about that. But, um, yeah, absolutely, we do have that list of, of U.S. interventions and destabilization. We've been covering that on Sojourner Truth. I do want to ask you, though, about uh, two things. One, there is the accusation of uh, war crimes against Russia. Um, we certainly know that in every war, as it seems, they are crimes against civilians. I've been listening to the Winter Soldier hearings of, about uh, soldiers testifying about what 
are war crimes were war crimes by the United States in um, Vietnam. But I want to read you this quote and get your response. Quote, they dashed out the brains of children and stripped off the clothes of women. They drove victims into flames and hanged the helpless to the lightning poles. Fathers were killed before the faces of mothers. Children were burned. Heads were cut off with axes. Pregnant women crawled and spawned in dark, wet fields. Thieves went through houses and firebrands follows. Bodies were thrown from bridges and rocks and bricks uh, flew through the air. Now, one would think that that this was a description uh, description of war crimes, but it is W.E.B. Du Bois, that black historian uh, writing in 1920 about that riot, the race riot at East St. Louis, where there's some um, reports of about 500 people uh, being killed there. So, you know, when it comes to talking about uh, about war crimes, uh, no doubt, I don't doubt that they, they happen. I, I don't doubt either that the reports that the Ukrainians have also been killing and, you know, torturing Russian soldiers, etc. This is the horrors of war. One of the reasons Pacifica Radio, our radio network from the beginning has opposed war. Um, so just tell us um, your thoughts about the double standards when it comes to uh, who is accused of war crimes. Alfred. Well, I have been a pacifist all my life, from the time of the uh, Vietnam War. I was a student at Harvard Law School at the time of the Vietnam War, and I demonstrated against it. And I've been against all the American interventions uh, in Latin America and elsewhere in the world, all the coup d'etats of the United States and the CIA, and the National Endowment for Democracy have co-financed. But of course, When it comes to war crimes, I mean, I look at, not at the statistics, I look at the face of the victims. And there are victims on all sides. Obviously, the Russians commit war crimes, but the Ukrainians have committed many war crimes against uh, the Russian-Ukrainians of uh, Lugansk and Donetsk and continue doing it with total impunity. The problem is that the information war and our, uh, thank God, it, I mean, you exist. And in the United States, it is possible to have alternative media. But the mainstream media, the corporate media in the United States, disinforms systematically and then suppresses all the information uh, that does not fit the narrative. And I've had that experience myself as independent expert of the United Nations when I sent God knows how many op-eds to the New York Times. And that in my capacity as independent expert. Do you think that a single one of them was ever printed? And uh, the same thing goes with Washington Post. The same thing goes with CNN. They do not want to hear a dissenting opinion uh, if I am not willing to sing the song that the New York Times wants to hear, so I don't think, period. So my reports exist. I submitted 14 reports to the General Assembly and to the um, uh, Human Rights Council here. Uh, but, I mean, they are in the Internet. 
uh, but they don't get any uh, platform. They don't get any visibility uh, in the larger media. Going back to war crimes, I've, uh, I've always said we need evidence-based accusations, not just wild accusations of war crimes, crimes against humanity, or genocide. Let's have an objective, neutral, impartial investigation of what happened in Buha, but not only of what happened in Buha. We have to know the crimes that were committed against uh, uh, Ukrainian Russians in Lugansk and Donetsk by um, uh, the Ukrainian army and the continued crimes being committed against Ukrainian Russians in Lugansk and uh, Donetsk. I mean, international law is by definition universal. It applies to every country. The problem is one of uh, systematic impunity for the West. So anything that NATO does, everything that the United States does uh, is okay. Uh, But uh, whatever is done uh, by our adversary, our geopolitical rivals, that is then blackened as, you know, genocide and as war crimes. Well, I would like uh, to say uh, that uh, the International Criminal Court should investigate all war crimes and crimes against humanity, and that includes the crimes committed by NATO forces in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Libya, in Syria, etc. And that is not happening. I mean, the ICC has lost all credibility because the ICC hitherto has only indicted Africans. It is really shocking. I mean, if anyone should be indicted, it's Tony Blair, uh, for instance. Alfred, you know, given the propaganda, I mean, to watch main, what we in Pacifica would call mainstream media, it's blanket propaganda, it's blanket talking points from the U.S. State Department. I mean, the the media industrial complex is in full force here. So it means that even our research team, people have real trouble trying to get information about what the heck is really going on. On the one hand, propaganda from the U.S. On the other hand, propaganda on the Russian side. Um, Alfred, for people who really want to try to find out what is uh, going on, besides listening uh, to shows like this one, what would you suggest they do? And, and do uh, tell us quickly, please, because we really are out of time. Alfred, this well, uh, You know, I published in Counterpunch. I've uh, published over the last month 20 uh, essays in Counterpunch. Counterpunch okay. has excellent analysis by very prominent professors, including Richard Falk uh, of uh, the University of California at Santa Barbara. And uh, I would say there is a blogger in uh, uh, Montreal, I beg your pardon, in Melbourne, in Australia. She's called Caitlin Johnstone. Caitlin Johnstone. And I read her um, uh, her blogs every day. She has a tremendous following. And I find that her analysis, I mean, she evidently has access to a hell of a lot of information. Alfred, uh, Alfred, please. 
could you send us her contact, her information, the blog? We will like post it on our, our um, social media. But we really do have to go. You have a lot to say. We'll be back in touch with you. Thank you for joining us, Alfred Desaias. Thank you. And, uh, and you will hear things and learn things that you would have expected in the pages. All righty. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're going to take a short, short station break when we return our weekly Earth Minute, and D.A. Bullock uh, joins us about what is going on in Minneapolis, the officer charged with the murder of Amir Locke will not be prosecuted, and also our Earth Watch. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Well, you've been talking, talking to people, trying to get them to go your way. Telling us not to worry You say we won't be there straight We're so tired of y'all singing funny How do we know till it's too late Whether or not you been lying Thinking of a mistake you made I believe so from 10 this morning for 90 days after that, just go to kpfk.org, scroll down to archives, click on Sojourner Truth. You'll be able to hear the show in its entirety, and you can subscribe for a free podcast. If you've missed any part of this hour from 10 this morning for 90 days after that, just go to kpfk.org, scroll down to archives, click on Sojourner Truth. You'll be able to hear the show in its entirety, and you can subscribe for a free podcast. And uh, if you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. And our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. We're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And internationally, a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Switzerland. We are now going to uh, turn our attention to, uh, uh, sadly, yet again, to uh, Minneapolis, where the police officer who, in a no-knock warrant, uh, shot and killed um, the uh, Amir, Amir Locke. A really tragic story. His death should not have happened, and now no one will be held to account. Let's go to a clip now um, where you would hear uh, Ben Crump, um, the lawyer, talking about this case. So ironic that it would happen here at the National Action Network convention where Karen Locke, the mother of Amir Locke, were joining other family members, mostly black mothers who had their children killed unjustly and she was coming to try to talk about how to be supportive of them and them to bond together unbeknownst to her Reverend Al that at the very moment she's preparing to come downstairs she gets the news that they're not going to charge the police officer for breaking into the house in the wee hours of the morning, while her son is asleep, he's so asleep that the cop kicks the couch twice to wake him up. He immediately wakes up not knowing who they are, and he's a law-abiding citizen. 
He's never had a criminal history, has a permit to carry a gun. He goes to protect himself. Where is the Second Amendment supporters for black people who have a right to bear arms? Where is the NRA? They should be outraged. It shouldn't just be the National Action Network. They keep promoting Second Amendment gun rights to protect your home, to protect your sanctuary. Well, that applies to black people, too. Her son was one of those people who had every right to the Second Amendment. And when we think about these no-not warrants, before you hear from Karen, who is, is heartbroken, her and uh, Amir's father, Andre Locke, they are heartbroken, and she's going to tell you in her words, as only a black woman can, how frustrating this is that, you know, they break into the house after they got this unjustifiable, unnecessary, unconstitutional no-not warrant for property. I mean, this is what they call themselves breaking into the apartment for. It's an affront to the Fourth Amendment rights against unlawful, unreasonable searches and seizures. We saw it with Breonna Taylor. Now we see it in Minneapolis. All righty. Thank you uh, for that clip there. I'd now like to welcome our guest, D.A. Bullock, who is involved with Reclaim the Block, a coalition to demand that Minneapolis divest from policing and invest in long-term alternatives. You have had D.A. Bullock on before on these issues. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, Margaret. Okay. So, you know, almost at a loss for words here, but... Um, Keith Ellison has said that they didn't have any choice but to not prosecute the officer, given the law that is in place. A lot of people around the nation were confused simply because Minneapolis at some point had announced that they were going to stop this no-not warrant entry. A lot of fuss made after after Brianna was killed. So give us your reaction. What are, what are the issues involved here? And do you think that they should have been charged despite Ellison saying that likely they would not have been able to make a case given the law as it stood at the time this a young man was murdered by the police? D.A. Bullock. Uh, yeah, firstly, I, you know, my heart goes out to Amir Locke's family. And, you know, I agree with his mom saying when she said she's not disappointed anymore. She's to be honest, she's, she's to the point of being disgusted with this city. I think a lot of us in the community share that sentiment. You know, we are fed up and we are disgusted because like you mentioned, our mayor had announced ostensibly a, a ban on no-knock warrants, and he lied. He lied to the residents, and he used that throughout 2021 in his campaign in order to sort of prove that these reforms were being put in place after the death of George Floyd. And then we see what happens to Amir. In terms of the not being able to charge the police, I feel like we're seeing ourselves backslide back into the same old processes around, you know, prosecutors' discretion, county prosecutors. Because firstly, the county prosecutor is the one in charge of, of making this charge against the police officer. And we've seen this kind of passing the buck along the way. But we know that 
police officers have a lot of understanding and discussion about the dangers of executing these no-knock warrants. And in fact, the mayor had, had spoken to this idea of police officers know the dangers that there could be Second Amendment law-abiding citizens within their homes who own guns. And they they know the history. They know Breonna Taylor's case. They know the history of Ayanna Stanley Jones in Detroit. They know these histories of when these no-knock warrants have gone wrong. And then also we know that our own within our own metro area, our, our sister city right next door, you could walk to St. Paul. They haven't used no-knock warrants since 2016 because they know the dangers of using those no-knock warrants. They know the dangers to residents, and they also know the dangers to police officers. So for officials to say officers were reasonable and not expecting that all these other circumstances could be within that home. I don't I don't buy that. I don't think that's that's an accurate detail. Prosecutors have discretion in order to file charges and they have the responsibility of, of bringing those charges robustly when they know the circumstances because only one only one officer fired. Uh, there are several other officers in that room who made a different reasonable choice that day. So I think there should be some higher level of accountability for officers who make deadly lethal choices. Yeah, and I mean, you know, Amir, 22 years old, his whole life, you know, in front of him. What an absolute uh, heartbreak. And also, you know, they apparently, he was asleep, right? He was asleep. It was, I don't know, it was something like early morning, 6.45 in the morning. He's asleep. And apparently the police actually had to kick the 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 couch that he was sleeping on in order to wake him up and furthermore he wasn't even a suspect he wasn't named in anything he wasn't a suspect and here's this man now uh having uh lost his life the family they do intend to uh to do a civil suit uh but you know da just putting this in a, a bigger context here i mean congress finally managed to pass an anti-lynching bill. This is after 120 years of people trying to bring an anti-lynching bill. And honestly, given the fact that 80 or more than 80% of these no-knock warrants are used against black people, against people of color, uh, and, you know, what we saw with Amand Arbery, et cetera. I mean, I really see a lot of examples of what I consider to be modern day lynchings, frankly. And, uh, you know, we can't wait another 120 years for this stuff to stop. Uh, right. So just give us your uh, final thoughts here, just in the broader context of what this really means in terms of the ongoing and historic attacks against our communities. I think what it really means is, again, we have to, as black folks especially, we have to remove ourselves from the sort of the political gamesmanship of ideas like defunding or police and really talk to each other about, like, what what is the purpose of police in our communities? And then why can't we hold them accountable? You know, we had Dion Willis in Baton Rouge, which was a warrant being served after they knocked. They waited and then they ended up shooting him and lynching him even after they, you know, knocked and announced themselves. So even within the parameters of some of these so-called reform tactics, they still have the ability to lynch us in our homes as law-abiding citizens 
as people who are bystanders, as as just black people living our lives, we are subject to their discretion about whether we live or die or whether we're harmed or not. And they can do this all in the, the name of law enforcement. And I think that's that's something we just have to examine and say, is that really a reformable place for us as community members? I think our history has shown that's not reformable for us. We need to really embrace totally new ideas around how we keep each other safe and then how we invest our dollars because you know black communities we're highly invested in all these cities and all these police departments like our police department spends uh they had a 193 million dollar budget last year and that's not counting all of the settlements and lawsuits against the police for all the abuse that they exacted in the last two years and that's a lot of investment from the black community in something that's killing us and harming us and we have to find a better way uh, and we know a better way because long before there were police you know we were taking care of one another within community we were looking out for one another in community and we were pro- providing accountability for one another within community which I think is another important component we're not talking about um, mayhem and chaos, we're talking about, you know, bringing parents and, and you know, community members back into the fold when it comes to bringing our young people back to accountability and, and a restorative kind of justice. Um, because this, this current system is not working for us. We're out of time, so we're going to have to have you back because that, that is a much um, longer discussion. We really need time to dig into that so that our audience, uh, you know, really uh, gets what uh, community members are putting forward but we appreciate you joining us and and we hope to have you back soon as we continue this discussion and um, we know that a lot of Minneapolis including yourself and and actually black people all over the country are grieving on this latest situation unjust killing of 22 year old Amir Locke thank you DA Bullock Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Margaret. All righty. Uh, we are now going to quickly go to our weekly Earth Minute uh, and then coming up our weekly Earth Watch. This week, an open letter to the Nature Conservancy was publicly released from 158 organizations with over 3.5 million members working to protect forests as a critical climate justice solution. The letter expresses deep concerns with the Nature Conservancy's recurrent pattern of promoting false climate solutions, including carbon offsets, large-scale bioenergy, and industrial logging. According to the letter, in various public policy arenas across the country, the Nature Conservancy is promoting wood markets and or logging in direct conflict with environmental justice communities and scientific evidence regarding the impacts on climate, biodiversity, fire risk, and human health. Instead of protecting nature as the Nature Conservancy claims to do, their promotion of false climate solutions further threatens nature and maintains business as usual in the face of social and ecological disaster. For the Earth Minute and the Sojourner Truth Show, this is Teresa Church with Global Justice Ecology Project. Right, and that takes us directly into our topic for this week's uh, Earth Watch. I want to thank the Global Justice Ecology Project. We partner with them both for our weekly Earth Minute and our weekly Earth Watch. I'd now like to welcome our guest, uh, Dana Smith, Executive Director of Dogwood Alliance. Um, She is a founder, actually, of Dogwood Alliance. For over 20 years, she's been at the forefront of 
forest protection in the United States, leading hard-hitting campaigns and negotiating groundbreaking forest protection commitments from some of the largest companies in the world. She's a leading voice connecting the dots between climate change, forest destruction, and social justice, and pushing for forest protection in the U.S. at a scale necessary to meet the sustainability challenges of the 21st century. She holds a law degree from Emory University. Uh, Dana, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's exciting to be here today. Right. So the nature conspiracy, uh, 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 conservancy, it seems like a nature conspiracy indeed. Nature conservancy, many of us think, you know, are really the good guys. You have a complaint against them. What is the problem with the nature conservancy? Well, we see a historical pattern, and more recently, it's gotten even more intense with the Nature Conservancy aligning itself with the very companies uh, and industries that are destroying forests and polluting communities across the U.S. um, and falsely promoting the expansion of wood production and associated logging under the guise that it is a natural climate solution. We see that TNC is using its vast resources to advance an agenda that's perpetuating the ongoing assault on nature and environmental justice communities and obstructing our ability to solve the climate crisis. And we're very concerned that TNC uh, is dismissing scientific warnings, ignoring the voices of communities that are directly being harmed by this industry, and overpowering smaller organizations who are working against all odds every day to defend and protect forests and communities. We just do not have time right now for false climate solutions. Absolutely. And you have, I mean, there are 158 organizations, over 3.5 million uh, members um, who have written to the Nature Conservancy. I mean, that includes Biofuel Watch, the Black Hills Clean Water Alliance, um, Cherokee Concerned uh, Citizens, the Fund for Wild Nature, um, you know, so many. The the John Muir Project of Earth Island Institute, Indigenous Environmental Network, um, Idle No More in the San Francisco Bay Area. I mean, we could go on and on. Rainforest Action Network. So what kind of response, if any, have you gotten from a nature conservancy on these on this issue? Well, the reason that we've uh, gone public with this letter and this expose is because we um, have been trying in earnest to uh, work with TNC to address these issues. And we had two meetings uh, with this new CEO, her name is Jennifer Morris, and senior staff uh, in, at the end of 2020 and at the beginning of 2021. Um, Dogwood, along with uh, top scientists and environmental justice leaders, had a three-and-a-half-hour meeting with the CEO in February of 2021. We laid out our concerns, um, and, you know, we basically, our ask was pretty simple, you know, to publicly acknowledge the devastating impacts that wood production and industrial logging is having on climate, biodiversity, and environmental justice communities, and to collaborate with us 
instead of collaborating with polluters and forest destroyers to on an on an on um, advancing a bold forest protection agenda across the U.S. Six weeks after that meeting uh, with the CEO, we got a very disappointing response where the CEO said they would not be making such a statement, thanked us for the dialogue, um, accused the scientists of misrepresenting the science, and essentially shut the door on future communications. Um, so we went out and gathered 158 signatures on a letter to, to the CEO with plans to make our concerns public because we've seen in the past with big companies, which we consider TNC at this point to be sort of an arm of the forest industry acting more like a, a, a corporation than a nonprofit that, you know, if you can exert public pressure, Sometimes you can um, get the change that you need to happen. So that's why we went public with the letter in an attempt to, at a minimum, uh, get back to the table with TNC and make sure that they are taking these concerns more seriously, um, but also to make sure that the public and policymakers and funders are aware of the shenanigans that are going on here with this organization. Yeah, and uh, most people likely have no idea. And in uh, your letter, you point out the science uh, that says logging is the single largest driver of carbon emissions from U.S. forests, even six times greater than from fires, land use change, insects, drought, wind damage uh, combined. So this is a serious business we're talking about here. Um, uh, Dana, what can our listeners do about this? I mean, what would you suggest people do, uh, you know, to really support your efforts and to get the Nature Conservancy to pay some attention to this? Yeah, well, I think the most important thing that people can do is to get engaged uh, with the organizations who sign on to the letter. So if there are organizations that are in the readership. Uh, geographic location, um, then, you know, contact those organizations and get involved on the local level to help, um, to help protect forests. It is vital that we protect our forests to secure the future. It's becoming increasingly clear that without forest protection, we will not get out of this crisis that we're in right now in terms of climate change and ecological destruction as well as environmental environmental injustices. Um, so that would be the first thing is for people to really support and get engaged with the groups that have signed on to this letter that are in their uh, communities. Um, the second thing would be if you're on social media, if you're on, um, you know, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, follow us uh, at Dogwood Alliance and uh, help elevate and amplify this message to the Nature Conservancy uh, to help us spread the word, to help us get their attention. Um, yeah, and of course, they are the Nature Conservancy. As you say, they are the largest and richest um, conservation organization in the United States. And 
you know, when we look at the impact of all of this, of, of pollution and the lack of protection of biodiversity and the health impacts, first of all, on frontline communities, communities of color and other communities, we see that this is absolutely vital. For people who want to sign on to the letter, uh, what should they do? Is there a website or a place that they can go? Dana? Yeah, they can contact the nature conspiracy at gmail.com. The nature conspiracy at gmail.com. That's right. correct. Well, if they want to get more involved on an individual level uh, in this effort. Right. Well, thank you so very much for your efforts, uh, Dana Smith, Executive Director, Founder of Dogwood Alliance. And please keep us posted on how this goes and if you, uh, what kind of response, if any, that you ha you get from um, the Nature Conservancy after going public in this way. We appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Thank you. Thank you. Will do. All righty, we are out of time. I'd like to thank uh, today's uh, guests. Um, our show today introduced by me, Margaret Prescott, our board up today, Gary Baca, our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Uh, please, um, we will be back tomorrow on the air with our weekly roundtable. You won't want to miss that. Please stay tuned for Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Press. God and y'all, please remember to stay safe.